Okay. Hey, welcome to You Talking with Greg. I am here with my good friend, Rick Rapetti, and I am very excited. I think I choose to be excited. No, wait, I'm determined to be excited. No, wait, I don't even think I have a self. I don't know what's happening, but my brain is all excited uh, to be here and dialogue uh, with Rick Rapetti. Uh, we're going to be talking uh, a little bit about him, uh, but uh, you got, he was already here on uh, Inside You Talk. Uh, we had a conversation a while ago. Rick and I actually spend uh, you know, regular conversations talking about uh, philosophical things with a small group. Uh, it's really fascinating. Rick, welcome uh, to the show. Great to be here on Now You Talking uh, for the first time, uh, as opposed to Inside You Talk. Is that the That's other right. One? That's right. We are now on You Talking with Greg. And it's still uh, you and, and me. It's still you right. and me. And, uh, but, you know, the Big Bang happened and this, this was... And then it was inevitable. It's already happened uh, in the, some places. So uh, anyway, yeah, Rick... Yeah, That's the summary, by the way, of Robert Sapolsky's new thesis, which is the Big Bang happened and then everything else happened. Everything else happened. And you can look <laughs> at the tiny little things that happen in behavior. And then you look at long scales and everything's just determined and they're behaved, determined to behave. There's, there's two books and we can be done with it. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. What happened right now was influenced by what happened 10 seconds ago and 10 so. hours ago and 10 weeks ago and 10 million years ago. And, you know all the way back to the Big Bang. Sweet. All right. Well, that wraps it up. Well, folks, yeah. thank you for... Uh... Oh, no, we could add a couple of more sentences. Uh, there's only bottom-up causation. Only? Uh, any top-down causation is superficial, and that's ultimately explained by bottom-up causation. Ultimately. Okay. Even this conversation, of course, and my conclusion okay. that it's bottom-up or top-down or whatever. And, th <laughs> and therefore, all mental phenomena are not the causal, the locus of causation. The Big Bang is, uh, and any consequences of the Big Bang. And let's throw in a ton of scientific details about all the little ways in which these little things cause those little things. And then we'll just make a leap and say, everything is like that. Therefore, there's no free will. Right. And we'll assume, we'll assume that we know what free will is. We don't have to do a philosophical analysis of what that could possibly mean. We just know that it doesn't exist. That's right. And actually, we're going to define it as an uncaused cause, kind of like God. And then once we define it that way, then we'll look for all these causes, find all these causes and say, hey, that must not exist. <laughs> yeah. So for right. the listeners, we are... Um, critiquing Robert Sapolsky's arguments in his latest book, Determined uh, a Science of Life Without Free Will. All right. Yeah, so let's back up a little bit. Let's give folks yeah. a little bit of context because you and I are so eager to get in. <laughs> this is like at, when you watch some of these podcasts and in the first minute they clip something from the middle of it and put it up front. We did that for you. Well, right. And I don't really have, you know, Christian Gross is a great production tip, but I don't have a team. So we just need to improvise it. And we did that brilliantly. <laughs> All right. So uh, so let's back up. So, yeah, see this. Uh, we are going to be talking about free will. Uh, determinism with a focus on Robert Sapolsky's recent book, which is getting a lot of press. Uh, that book follows uh, another book he wrote called Behave, uh, which I actually uh, wrote uh, a critique of. Um, let's uh, here, let me. I'm generally fairly agreeable, um, but I find myself more critical of Robert Sapolsky than virtually any other uh, sort of science thinker. I'll just say that right here, and then the audience. Uh, no disrespect to the man uh, at level, but uh, his ideas and the way he presents them around philosophical issues 
uh, bugged the crap out of me. It's just unbelievably unsophisticated in my estimation. He just completely ignores that we don't understand the problem of psychology uh, and above, and then just decides it's all biology and environment over and over. Um, and then says, I don't understand philosophy, and I'll just tell you my new, naive, new deterministic view of the world. And everybody all gets, oh, he's at Stanford, and he researches baboons and, and does real science, so he must know what he's talking about. Um, I don't think he knows what he's talking about. Uh, and so there's where I come in. Uh, Rick has a long history of uh, deep exploration uh, in the concept of free will from a philosophical perspective, from a, the concept of the self, um, Eastern perspective. So uh, it's lovely to uh, engage in you in this conversation. So, Rick, why don't you just take a second and ba back up a little bit and tell us a little bit about your uh, background and your interest in the concept of the self and free will? Sure. And I'll just say, although Sapolsky is kind of like the center point of our discussion today, we've talked before that book came out or we even heard that it was going to come out that we wanted to get together and talk free will. Totally. So, so we're doing both of those things today. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm excited about it. And in fact, uh, I'll just throw this out there. It's it, I had a lot of thoughts about the concept of free will. I did one blog on it. It's an underdeveloped thing. And maybe you and I, who knows what, where this will take. I know from our conversations, it's going to be fruitful. Uh, so anyway, uh, that's that's lovely. So yes, why don't you uh, share a little bit about your background? All right. Well, so I am a professional philosopher. I am a full professor at City University of New York, uh, one of the colleges in Brooklyn, which is Kingsborough Community College. I got my PhD in philosophy at the CUNY Graduate School, um, where I studied with such luminaries as Jerry Fodor and Jerry Katz and all these other characters. So I, I got a really sort of intensely analytic training in philosophy uh, at the grad center. Um, the, the, the entire rage there at the time was philosophy of language, logic, and science. Right. Uh, and, and with an emphasis on language, because we have to figure out what things really mean. Otherwise, there's that Wittgensteinian idea that we're just playing with a house of cards and most of the problems of philosophy will go away once we sort out what meaning is and what logic is and all that. And science, is, of course, is, a, you know, one of the premier epistemologies, but philosophy is kind of like a meta epistemology mm -hmm. over science and, you know, da, da, da. so. Um, but at the grad center, free will was considered and it traditionally is considered a metaphysical problem and, you know, logical positivism and that kind of scientism almost dominated the grad mm -hmm. center. And they were they had no kind of respect whatsoever for ethics, the history of philosophy, metaphysics, any of these other topics, aesthetics. It's all woo woo as far as they were concerned. Mm -hmm. We're doing, you know, touring stuff, you know, we're going to figure totally. things out. Um, you know, we're at the cutting edge. And so when I finished all my coursework and my comprehensive exams and everything, it took me about a year of thinking, I know all my professors. I was Jerry Katz's, uh, he's okay. like a philosopher of language. Yeah. I was his, his grad assistant. And he was so disappointed when I told him, uh, Jerry, I don't want to write about semantics and, you know, the problem of the material conditional. One of my fr best friends wrote her dissertation on how the material conditional, the if-then statement, 
in logic differs from its use in ordinary language. Hmm. So in, on a truth table, the if-then is only false if the antecedent is true and the consequent is false. Okay. The other three rows are true-true, false-false, and false-true. All of those are considered true on mm-hmm. a truth table, right? But in ordinary English, you wouldn't say, um, I'm Rick Rapetti because you're Greg Enriquez. They're both true, <laughs> right? So in ordinary English, the true-true the thing doesn't work. So she wrote her dissertation on that, trying to, you know, bridge the gap. And I, this is like this kind of language logic thing. And I just thought, like, that's that hairs on a pin kind of thing. Mm. I was interested in free will from when I was a teenager because I had some precognitive dreams that were so massively complex that people will think I'm woo here, but they were so massively complex that it was more improbable that I could have them than that it was, you know, the the standard error theory, Occam's razor dismissal of precognition is that Probability theory predicts that you're going to get four aces, you know, or even eight, two, three, four, five, all the way up to 13. Yeah, it's going to happen. It's going to. But, you know, I had like hundreds of hits in the same dream in a row and someone else had them also. I had happened to me on numerous occasions when I was most steeped in my meditative practice, bizarro precognitive experiences. And that made me wonder about free will. How could these contingent random choices that human beings make this year, Uh a a series of them between now and when the precognitive dream comes true, how could I know that if Uh it's all free, right? Uh Like like thousands of random contingent events are influencing something that happens a year from now. How could a mind perceive it? So that was my initial interest in free will. Okay. (laughs) That was my initial interest. Yeah. So, and you would think that based on that experience, I would think we don't have free will. Mm. But um, that's what drew me to philosophy. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. And and so, as an undergrad, I took one independent study with my mentor on free will, and there was only one reading that touched on that fatalism kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But nobody was interested in that at the grad center. But when it was time to write my dissertation, I said, you know what? That's what drew me to philosophy. Mm-hmm. I'm on a dissertation on free will. Wow. And like Jerry Katz and all my mentors who thought I was one of the greatest students, they were like, oh. what a like disappointment. A- this is like a physicist saying, I'm going to try and prove cold fusion or something, right. you know? Right. And I actually had one of my philosopher friends accuse me of studying cold fusion, you know? The cold fusion equivalent in philosophy. <laughs> yeah. <huh? laughs> yeah. Yeah. So my personal interest is is very deep in the subject. Okay. But um, I've also been practicing to mention that those precognitive dreams, I associate them with my very deep disciplined meditation practice that I had as a teenager which was spurred on by an out-of-body experience that I had by random accident. First time I took a yoga class, during the deep relaxation thing at the end, I had a, a, a full-blown out-of-body experience that blew my mind. So I got my hands on anything I could read about yoga and meditation. I taught myself. I became a hardcore yogi meditator. I found teachers like Ramdas and whatnot. I studied with years. I was like a monastic but living with my parents as a teenager. And I was having all these bizarre experiences. So my interest in philosophy grew out of 
these bizarro experiences. But nothing in my analytic philosophical studies was about any of that. If anything, it was rejecting all of that. It was just dismiss that. Yeah, that's even more absurd than than you. What do you care about ethics, Rick? We're doing hardcore, cutting edge science and meta science here, epistemology, right. philosophy of language, all that kind of stuff. But I was like, no, that's what I want to write about. And um, fortunately for me, just when I started writing, some other philosophers started publishing about free will, and it became mm. a huge issue again. It somehow or another it came back into the fore mm. um, around the time that I published my dissertation. So in um, early 2010, you know, 2000s, 2005. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And most of my writing, uh, you know, once I got my PhD and I got a tenure track job, it was uh, fortunate for me at a community college. Normally, when you get hired as a philosopher on a tenure line, you're hired to teach in some area of specialization of yours. Right. Right. Nietzsche or medieval period or whatever it is. But at a community college, they don't care. Uh, mm. And they don't care what you publish on. So I was like, you know what? Now I can teach what I want and I could write what I want. And I started mm. going to researching meditation and Buddhism and mm. writing about things like that. In my dissertation, by the way, because of my long term meditation practice, I developed a kind of experiential based belief that our agency actually increases when we practice attentional control exercises mm. in meditation. Okay. You, you, you're cultivating metacognitive ability to select your attentional focus. You, you're cultivating those muscles. And just like any other skill, the more you practice a skill, the better you get at it. So I thought our agency increases while if you're practicing in a Buddhist lens, you think that your sense of yourself as an as an ego, as a separate autonomous entity, becomes more porous and malleable and flexible. Mm-hmm. Standard Buddhist interpretation is you increasingly approach no self. Mm-hmm. I'm not so sure about that conclusion. Because mm-hmm. to me, agency keeps getting stronger and stronger and stronger. But your ego, like your inflated ego, that kind of diminishes. Sure. So you, you you cultivate to me a, a much healthier sense of agency uh-huh, and, and uh-huh. selfhood and all of that as you go uh-huh. along, and your understanding of what self becomes much, what self has becomes much more complex and nuanced. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And it's you know I I saw the elusive eye series that you did with yeah. John Christopher Mastro Petro and yeah we, that could be a whole nother several conversations that we could have about what that means. Right. But, but my interests have been in agency and selfhood. Uh-huh. Okay. Most of my publications, a lot of them were about Buddhism, meditation, agency, free will, selfhood, uh-huh. um, because I have a lot of knowledge and experience practicing Buddhist meditation techniques, and yep. I know a lot about the scholarship, so it's kind of like a niche area of mine, yep. um, but my interests are broader than just the, the Buddhist lens. It's something I have expertise in. Right, right. So that's a little bit about my background. Oh, and last year... I came out with the Rutledge Handbook on the Philosophy of Meditation mm-hmm. um, when John Verveke was one of the contributing uh, right. authors. That's how I met John. Yep. Uh, you know, I, I was watching Waking from the Meaning Crisis by accident, and I thought this guy could contribute a chapter to my mm-hmm. book, an opening, because somebody dropped out. I contacted him. We had only like a month left. I said, it's a, it's a long shot, but could you write me something in a month? He said, could I have an extra week? And I <laughs> are you kidding? 
And he managed to do it in a month anyway. And it was, uh, so that's how I met John. I wound up in his orbit and that's how I met you uh, and that sort of thing. So. Love that's it. A, that's brilliant. Yeah. No, thank you for that. That, that, that orients. Uh, so now how we start to hone in, uh, do you want to say a little bit uh, about where you're coming from in relationship to agency, self and free will at the level of kind of like how you start to think about this? Or do you would you rather go into Robert Sapolsky and then evolve into sharing your perspective? Well, I'll say a little bit about just the kind of like a disclosure, disclaimer yeah. thing. What like you said, your bias about Sapolsky. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah, I have a similar. But I always liked his work. Um but once I started hearing him talk about free will, which is my wheelhouse, I thought, uh, like, he doesn't know what he's talking. He knows a lot, but not enough. Yeah. And um, but I'll say a little bit about my I already did sketch that. I think that agency is something that you can cultivate and increase okay. uh-huh. by practicing exercising some of the component skills that make up your agency. Uh-huh. And I think one of the key central skills is selective attention focus. Uh-huh. And even what I would say is, and this is something that you practice in meditation. Uh-huh. People might come to meditation with other purposes, but they're cultivating uh-huh. these skills. Two yeah. skills, which to me are two aspects of the same more generic skill. Uh-huh. And so the two basic meditation techniques are one-pointedness, okay. where you select something like the breath or a mantra, a candle flame, whatever, a thought, and it's a narrowing of your, it's selective attention focused narrowly on one subcomponent of your experiential field, whatever yep. that is, right? And the practice is you intend to maintain focus and mind wandering naturally happens, which is healthy. And I think this goes back to predator prey. If you were focused only on the prey, some predator might get you if you didn't have peripheral awareness. So it's it's smart for us to toggle back and forth between yeah. folk and, and uh, figure and ground. You know, uh-huh. uh, that's a great. That's not a bug. A lot of meditation teachers think it's a bug. It's a feature. But you want to control that feature by practicing it voluntarily. So when your mind wanders off the intended target, you notice it and you return your attention. And the more that that happens, this is like weightlifting, the more you cultivate that muscle of maintaining focus. And eventually, you achieve it. (laughs) You do. You get this blissful trance, peaceful mind state thing. Uh, you know, you know about calm mo. But yeah. I'm just rehearsing this for the purposes of this discussion. Sure, one aspect of the skill. The other basic, and there are many variations on these two techniques. But mm-hmm. the other basic, and these are the two most popular Buddhist techniques, but they found everywhere anyway, is kind of what's called open monitoring, which is kind of more global, unfocused awareness, where the entire field of consciousness is the target, so to speak. Uh-huh. And you maintain this kind of global, peripheral, not centered, almost like whack-a-mole, where whatever appears in the field of consciousness, you are attentive to it. Uh-huh. This is being in the present moment, like a Zen kind of thing, fully uh-huh. responsive to whatever's arising in the field right. of consciousness. Now, I make the uh, a kind of metaphorical analogy, like if there was a bullseye, any uh-huh. rung on it could be where you focus. One pointedness is the bullseye. The open monitoring is the entire 
Love that. Yep. Right? And you want to be aware of the entire dartboard. Now, when you're practicing that level, mind wandering happens and you get pulled into this subcomponent. Mm-hmm. You're off on a train of thought or that sound, this feeling in your knee, and you fall into it. And then you realize it and you come back to the global focal range. It's the same exercise. You have an intended focal range, which is broad, and you lose it, and then you come back, or narrow, and you lose it, and you come back. So that's why I say they're both versions of a more generic skill, Yep. which is maintaining your intended focal range. (laughs) The more that you do that, the more you're in control of when things are normally arising in your psychodynamic, phenomenological, experiential, sensory, organism, environment, interactive field, agent arena, whichever way you want to call it. Totally. If you're globally aware, you're more capable of noticing when your attention is being grabbed, how it is. The more meta-awareness you have, the more control you have. Mm-hmm. It's as simple as that. And that's been my experience. I've been practicing for... 50 five zero years mm. <laughs> and so uh this is anecdotal but it's also part of meditative lore so there are sure. millions of people throughout the tradition and generations and generations it's kind of uh you know traditional anecdotal law collectively is more than just mere anecdotes absolutely absolutely and, and i'll just say this now as a psychotherapist and who developed commmo um, where it's a, the focus essentially is on stepping out uh, into a recursive, reflective thing to go to psychotherapy. Is hey, what brings you in? I'm going to shift my perspective, start the process of telling the story. That's a meta observer. You're going to learn that, get recursively aware of certain kinds of attentional adaptive processes. Um, so whereas it's less about although I certainly appreciate this from a meditative perspective, the focus in or the broadening, it's sort of like, how do I become aware of the certain, for me, neurotic loops um, that are vulnerable to? So in the psychotherapy lore, it's like, oh, I hate this. I feel negative. There's a negative situation. And now my ego grabs a hold of that, resists it. To talk about pain times resistance, grabs a hold of that and then tries to control that or avoid that or blame other people for that. Um, And then all of a sudden, you know, you're in a negative dukkha spiral um, and we want to figure out how to shine a light on that and let that go and recursively build the muscle of sage mode. That's why MO is a modus operandi. It's like, actually, you got to do it. You got to do it. You got to do it under pressure. You got to do it when it matters. Uh, and you can't do that just right away. You can get the concept, but you don't know how to do it without procedural practice, without knowing what these things are and without doing it, um, you know, a lot and, and get better and better at it. So I, that, that's very resonant with me, I would say. Yeah, I'm not surprised to hear the immediate therapeutic implication of what I said. I've been telling my students, my meditation students, for decades that this practice can be very easily tweaked to be self-therapy because you're doing introspection and you're seeing where all your attachments are. You're seeing what your neuroses are. And when you get in a calm state, you can look at them more wisely, dispassionately. The other thing is... Like when someone fasts, they are resisting the impulse to eat, right? So they cultivate some form of self-control or over weakness of will, acrasia, acrasia, whatever you want to call it, right? That same kind of skills happen when you're meditating because you're just intending to sit still and you're intending to not become attached to your thoughts, impulses, desires, perceptions, whatever they are. 
you're cultivating distance and detachment, this kind of depersonalizing, decentralizing, but it's in a healthy way. And so, but once you enter into that mode, that calm, clear mode, you're in a most fruitful, ideal space. It's similar to the space that gets created with the trust with a the therapist, that I'm in a trusting, intelligent, caring space where I could look at this stuff wisely. You can do that with yourself. And Absolutely. what comes up when your mind wanders in meditation is the same stuff that comes up in your dream. It's unprocessed stuff. Yeah. Um, Ramdas was once asked, one of my favorite meditation teachers, one of my first meditation teachers, mm. um, you've been teaching this and practicing it for many decades, Ramdas. Where and how do you see the, the value of it the most in your life? And he said something like, I appreciate the value of meditation the most during those periods of my life when I lost my practice. Hmm. Those times I find myself walking around with a lot of, now this is a verbatim quote, undigested experiences, close quote. Now, when you meditate, you're digesting your experience because that's what comes up. Then when people go on long retreats, they discover traumas they didn't know they have, right? Because they're sitting for a long period of time. This is very similar to what happens in therapy, but it's oh. on your own. But a lot of people can't do that kind of work on their own, which is why meditators are frequently advised when heavy duty stuff comes up, seek a little bit of assistance from professionals. <laughs> Well, I mean, the, the, the model's direct. I mean, you know, in you talk language, you have your ego and your persona that we're self-conscious about. Hey, we're here. Then we got my primate self. And then you have this Freudian filter uh, and Rogerian filter because I want to maintain good public relations and my reputation. That's your Rogerian public filter. And then I have this ego that wants to tell a fucking story and wants to be OK and doesn't want to deal with all the crap that lives inside of me potentially. Uh, and so you filter that out. So for us, it's like you jam that into the closet, uh, you know, the, the shadow closet of your subconscious structure because it's painful, because it sucks, because it brings you down. And you just hear people, what's the point of me thinking about this, right? I mean, it's pretty simple to not want to think about it. Absolutely, avoidance. Exactly. What they, um, some call it, um, uh, what do they call it in Gestalt? Uh, creative adjustments. Yeah, which is lovely. a nice spin on it, you know. Uh -huh. and the behaviors call it, or third way behaviors call it experiential avoidance. Obviously, Freudians call it repression. I mean, yeah. it's all the same thing. Denial, uh -huh. armor, shields, yeah. all that kind yeah. of stuff. All that stuff. So, so anyway, the, the point of it is from a what we want to do is get a coherent, integrated, pluralistic flow in our system that is that is has all these dynamic parts, but also in constructive opponent process. When we block that shit, uh, and don't metabolize it, then we get unmetabolized stuff, right? Uh, that is potentially getting activated and then impinging upon us when we're not really ready for it. Um, so yeah, that enormously congruent. So let me say a few more things that are relevant Please. to the psychodynamic or psychotherapeutic process, but also the meditative path from my perspective, but also relevant to free will. Mm. So I mentioned detachment. The more that you're able to see your thoughts without being the thinker of them, you know, the witness mode, the more you can have a choice about whether or not to identify with them or reject them. Right? And in Buddhism, uh, the, um, what do they call it? Dharmic means 
oriented toward the Dharma or toward enlightenment or toward Nirvana. And adharmic means the opposite, or skillful or unskillful, right? So on the Eightfold Path, there's right view, which is the right beliefs, right framing. I, I like to call it right epistemology, so that it includes mm. all sorts of things, not just beliefs, but framing, any kind of propositional attitudes, your entire oh. epistemology. You want to have a kind of a, optimal grip in your epistemology. Um, but then the second one is right intention. So that's your desires and all that kind of affective stuff you want to. So when they arise in meditation, beliefs, desires, you want to label them as dharmic or adharmic, and you want to disidentify or detach from the negative ones and identify with and incorporate and practice the positive ones like compassion and whatnot, truthfulness, all those kinds of And it's right speech, right action, right livelihood. Livelihood is artificial. It's just like the collection of all your actions that you use to sustain yourself in the world. And then right effort. And then the two meditative techniques that I spoke about earlier, one-pointedness and mindfulness, or the expansive or narrow, right? All of those practices decondition you. And you, it, they enable you to decondition yourself. Mm-hmm. You are kind of looking at your genetic, biological, childhood, all the little things that formed you prior to you reaching the age of really conscientious reason and agency where you or meditative reflective metacognitive self-awareness and introspective self-sculpting you cultivate those skills and you're just like you can transfer and eliminate downplay upplay all that even Locke said something like freedom is the ability to step back from all the stuff going on in your head and pick and choose the ones that you want to activate or deactivate this process, the way that I try to call, I, 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 how do I label it? Uh, one of the free will uh, theorists named Robert Kane, who's a libertarian, so he believes in something like that totally uncaused cause stuff, but not okay. that great version of it that Sapolsky attributes to people like him. Um, he says something like this, like at the beginning of agency, maybe a seven-year-old, that you're more better at developmental psych than me, so I don't know what age to put on it. But when a kid is first making a serious torn decision, mm-hmm. both the desires are theirs, Kane yeah. would say. Mm-hmm. They're both there. It's the same agent's desires. But the agent, and if they're torn, they're equal. So it's sort of like they're neutralized on some level. So they're yeah. super, it's like a superposition and it's like mm-hmm. a collapse of a wave function. Mm-hmm. He picks one that he prefers, the kind of agent. Who would be the kind of agent that picks that one? Mm-hmm. He's forming his agency in the choice. Yep. He's lending his meta-level will to it because they're both base order will. And this is a higher order preference, mm-hmm. Frankfurt would say, orders mm-hmm. of desire. Yep. He's creating the kind of agent that he needs <clears throat> to be in the very process. So Kane calls it a self-forming action. Mm-hmm. And then we have a bunch of these. And, and now, of course... Just like you said with the Aristotelian thing, practice makes perfect, skill development, Aristotle, Buddha, and Confucius, the ABCs of virtue ethics, they all say, how do you cultivate virtues? By practice. You become a good guitar player by playing the guitar over and over and over again. Calm MO requires a lot of practice, right? So these skills require a lot of practice. So we have all these self-forming things that happen before we reach full, mature, self-reflective, Kohlbergian, post-conventional agency, whether it's the, you know, Gilligan's model or whatever is yeah, irrelevant. 
when we reach that level where we can now reflect on this is the kind of agent I became, I can still tweak it, I could change it. And these kind of practices enable us to do that. So what I say is that when you're practicing meditation, you're practicing self-unforming actions, you're deconditioning it when you remove the things that you no longer are valid, and you're simultaneously self-forming the new self. So it's this recursive feedback loop. You get feedback from your friends and neighbors and whatnot. They like the new you. They don't like the new you. Oh, that didn't work out. Uh, You know, so this is whole process. And that's a kind of, okay, it's not self-creation ex nihilo, which some critics say you can't be a cause of sui, a cause of your, that's logically incoherent. True. But you can change yourself as you go along. And yeah, sure. All the conditions that led into it and at every stage, what made sense to you was influenced by the, but you can get to a point where you're so deconditioned by the initial causes. It's not like you're operating outside the causal nexus, but you've had such a hand in your own formation that you are significantly morally and metaphysically responsible for the kind of agent that you are. That's my view. That's my basic view. (laughs) <laughs> well, that's lovely. Uh, and that's exactly, I mean, so, you know, when I, when people ask me about the free will versus determined, the first thing I say is I believe in self-determination. Okay. So that's self-forming. Um, and I believe in the recursive strange loop to use a Douglas Hofstetter term, uh, of our agency, meaning that as I become aware and have, I do things that have causal structure as I'm, in other words, the causal effect nexus is not like, how low do you go? Are we going, uh, you know, Inside of atoms, we're talking about one billionth of a second. What's the time frame there relative to the sentence? There's no fine-grained analysis at billionths of seconds in relationship to causation. Everything's happening across a nested layer that have time, space, aggregate things that are completely disjointed at one level. And things that are happening at gestalt levels of self-conscious reflective awareness um, are clearly part of the nexus causation. You mentioned about seven, usually actually... Six is where I'd kind of put it, where we actually are socializing universally when kids start to be held responsible for their actions. Uh, Sapolsky should note that I don't think there's a society ever that has had children into adults be held non-responsible for anything that they do. It's an interesting justification question that there's absolutely no responsibility or blame in any culture. Um, Generally speaking, responsibility and blame uh, emerges pretty uniformly in cultures at the level of five to six years old. Uh, When kids can start to be little persons at some level and start to have a recursive self-conscious system on top of their primate conscious system that says, hey, should I do this? <laughs> a part of me wants to, and a part of me doesn't want to. Like, what am I going to do? Like, that comes online with some reliability. And then that's the kind of cultivation of that recursive, hey, who are you? What kind of person are you? These are the kind of person your parents are and the kind of person we are. And then you start negotiating. First, you get socialized into it generally um, as what's called a social actor. And then as you evolve into from middle childhood to late childhood, you start saying, huh, <laughs> you know, hey, who am I? Really? And then you have your adolescent individuation. You're like, I think my parents are full of shit, like this whole society. And then you get you get this capacity where you can really differentiate and not only be like, hey, what kind of person am I? What kind of person should we be? Who am I in relation and differentiation? But all of that is a self-forming 
And then with insight, self-unforming kind of view that has a self-determined recursive strange loop of causality inside of it, it seems to me to be just blatantly obvious. Uh, and, and believe me, I, I don't see it anywhere in Sapolsky's. I haven't read the whole book. <laughs> just even this discussion. Uh, I, I haven't checked to see if he quotes Hofstetter as a strange loop uh, reflections. But anyway, I'll shut up there. No, he, doesn't. Just, you know. he does not. I got through the entire 18 hours audio book. Jesus. It was okay. brutal. It was brutal. He's so repetitive. And he's so cocky and arrogant and sarcastic um, and also so pedantic in terms of he'll give you like an hour's worth of some kind of elementary biology thing or cellular biology thing to talk about, you know, testosterone or this or that and statistics about how, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it's like, it, it implied is that the listener is science illiterate because I could have, he could have made all of his arguments in one hour of listening. If he eliminated all that unnecessary science, which I know enough of it, I might not have known all the details, but it was just so, annoying. it was really difficult for me to get through that whole book, especially just the way that he mischaracterizes the views that he's critiquing. It is yeah, right. I, I, I got yeah, I, I got through a third of it and found that already. Here, I actually have a place right here. I got to this point and was pissed off about this. So this is uh, at least on my uh, um, it's like page thirty on my uh, on my Kindle. What is consciousness? That was the title of this. Given this, given this section, this ridiculous heading reflects how unenthused I am about having to write this next stretch. Okay, and then he gives nothing about consciousness other than well, it's different from being in a coma or whatnot. Okay, like okay, folks, go to my now you talking series. There, are, it's not that complicated. You don't have to be well. It is a complicated subject, but at the base level, there's functional awareness, responsivity. That's your consciousness. Okay, at the level of coma, you're in a coma. You lack functional awareness and responsivity from the outside. Are you a zombie? Is Robert Sapolsky a zombie? I don't think so. That's not too terrible. You know, in other words, he's got experiences from the inside that color his life uh, and Greek well, that mind too, right? It's not complicated. And then you he and I are so. What's he admits, that? He admits to his emotional responses to people who believe in free will and whatnot. Yeah. Okay, so he's aware that he, uh, right, he has in a torturer's chair, he would feel pain in a torturer's chair. Okay, that's good. I'm glad that 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 that's exists. Um, and then and then there's recursive self-conscious. So I am now having an experience, especially collective recursive self-conscious, like you and I are sharing an experience on. So we're are now have functional awareness, responsivity of our experience of being and acting in the world. I mean that those layers are not that complicated. Why he would start. Uh, and it's this dismissive. That's why, folks, I'll get angry about this, because this is this modern empirical natural science, which has its roots in naive Newtonianism that then can come across as a sort of arrogant, scientific sounding way of like, poo poo, guys, you think that you have consciousness, but really it's all your brain. And it's all just metaphysical bullshit, basically. And it's very frustrating. He completely ignores. Like he has the, the first cone of matter and energy on your model. He has biology, and that's it. 
That well, he has it. neurons. He has neurons. All right. So that's maybe, it. But, but by, that, that's in between, right? But he calls it biology. Yeah. He calls it biology. And he keeps saying that over and over. There's just biology, environment, and history. That's what he says over and over and over again. Um, and, and it really is a striking articulation of a biophysical reductionist view that thinks it can just eliminate it. And, it's like, and you're like, well, why are people buying this book? I mean, what's happening? Is it is it a bunch of neurons are having this conversation about whether or not determinism exists? That's why I was like, I put on the you talk circle because somebody in the you talk circle was like, hey, what about this book? And I was like, OK, he's getting rid of blame and responsibility. Why don't we just get rid of justifications themselves? They don't mean anything. Right. It's just a bunch of neurons. Our arguments don't mean anything. Our arguments don't reduce to brains. It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Neurons have no meaning. This is the problem. But we exist in a world of meaning. Neuron, another way of putting it, I remember this from that class with uh, Jerry Fodor, um, that neurons have, they, they don't have aspectual shape. Like all of our phenomenological experience have aspectual shape to them. Hmm. There's things that like qualia or whatever. Hmm. Neurons sure. don't have that. They don't have it. <laughs> That's just one thing that neurons lack. Neurons don't understand. Neurons are the equivalent of the Chinese room. Searle's uh -huh. thought experiment. Totally. Are you familiar with that one? Of course, yeah. Uh -huh. Absolutely. Repeat it, repeat it for, the, for the listeners. So, yeah, so, what I, so essentially Searle basically, uh, and he was actually critiquing Fodor and other strong versions of computational recursivity, algorithmic computational recursivity, which basically would have... strong AI. And, and strong, strong AI. AI, exactly, which basically is, hey, we're an input-output algorithm system. That's how we understand so. And Fodor gives us this idea, well, well, let's see what this would look like. Let's put a guy in a Chinese room. He doesn't speak any Chinese at all. Searle. Searle does that, not Fodor. Yeah. No, he he's critiquing. Oh, did I? I'm sorry. Yes, it is, of course, John Searle's... Uh, uh, and I, yes. Um, anyway, the bottom line is Searle's argument for against this as a way of understanding human cognition, like it doesn't fit, is that essentially this is equivalent to the Chinese room where a guy's in a room, doesn't speak any Chinese, but he has this unbelievable code that anything that can come in, asks a particular sort of question and he can code it and then dump it out in an automatic input output. And the readout from the input output looks like he absolutely understands the whole thing. Yeah. And yet, suppose to simplify it, suppose he has a really long list of Chinese symbols in certain combinations like ABC, CDE, but Chinese symbols on the input. And then next to that is the output. So if this input, take these cards, give that output. And he's done it for a while. So he's really good at that. Does he understand Chinese? No, obviously not. No, so human not. understanding can't be reduced to that level. It just can't totally. be. Totally. And we can then put uh, really that kind of level is a particular kind of uh, semantic processing, algorithmic semantic processing. That's fundamentally different than our semantic processing, which is grounded in our embodied primate perspectival procedural participatory knowing. Uh, so at the level of like, and this, this is what we want to be clear on from my vantage point from a natural philosophy, big history. Hey, we're talking primates and our propositional is a late a landing structure and it has features of this, but the only way it works at the human level is to embed it in a human primate mind. In mind. Yes. It's what in it, mindedness, it's of what mindedness makes possible. Totally. And, and the idea that you could abstract out 
you know, yeah. and which, by the way, requires it to be alive. So first off, actually, it's got to be living and then living is nested. Mindedness is nested inside of that. And these propositional networks get human understanding. We can parrot them with LLMs, uh, but they're Chinese rooms. I mean, you know, they're zombies. Uh, and, and and we're invested in a compre- capacity for comprehension and understanding in a way that's fundamentally different, obviously. Yeah, one of the ways in which he strawmans the whole philosophical conception of free will is at several junctures throughout the book, he leads up to, you know, how neurons fire and, you know, ion channels and all that nonsense and shows it's all deterministic and everything and says, show me the one single neuron, which is even more of a gross, like if he said a network of neurons creating some functional ability greater than itself, that would be different. He doesn't say that because that's what we're trying to do when we do neural correlates of consciousness, Uh right? uh This is Uh how it's instantiated in the brain. He doesn't even do that. He says, show me the one neuron, which is a prime mover unmoved. I mean, I I thought that was the most ridiculous definition of free will I've ever seen. I I read that. I'm like, that is not at all what anybody says as far as I'm aware. Like I said, even libertarians like Robert Kane don't think that that first act of moral agency from a kid is a case of prime move moved. That's absurd. Uh, everything that makes you a kid, there's so much conditioning and causation in there. It's just a question of you having some control over it. Oh, and control, cybernetics, that's a big part of my understanding of free will. Thank you. When I say you can increase your agency, you can increase your control over yourself. All right? So this is another thing that I say about determinism. This is a kind of awkward and maybe a like maybe even a silly example but there are human beings who are incontinent and those who are continent some are very young and they haven't learned they're still wetting the bed some are old and they're subject to their you know aging conditions and they lose control over their bladders right suppose determinism is true people are continent and incontinent they're equally determined but in different ways the continent can control their bladders Because the signal from the bladder that it's full comes through consciousness, and there's some range of control that the agent can can exert over when and under what conditions it's socially appropriate to release that bladder. The incontinent has no control, right? So in the same way that continence is a kind of self-control, which could be completely determined, right? But it runs through conscious agency. So any other kind of conscious agency can be determined, right? And this is what Hume said. Ironically, people misunderstand Hume, but he said it's not that the will is caused. It's how it's caused that matters. Love. Of course, it's all caused. Well, this is, I mean, so my terminology on this is what is the sphere of agentic influence? Okay. There's a sphere of agentic influence. There's things inside the potential possible unfolding of cause. Let's just say, hey, Rick, uh, go ahead and stop the Israeli-Palestine war, would you please? Right. You know, go please go ahead and do that. And you're, right, hold uh, on. You know, huh, okay. You know, you know, and then, oh, uh, but go ahead and touch your nose. 
Okay, so there's all of this stuff that sits inside. And in fact, he doesn't, I didn't see him mention it. You know, you have totally different brain circuits that are activated in terms of the voluntary control structure. In fact, the brain is centrally organized around what is voluntarily controlled, like what's in the sphere of the agentic animal's influence and what is automatically regulated and what is outside of its control. Why? Because it's going to bring its attentional resources to shit that's inside the agent arena relationship. So all we better have a basic description between stuff that's inside the control, whereby agency can be enacted in the sense that there's decisions being made that are relevant for outcome. I, like you start reading this and of course he, you have this and then all of a sudden, well, not even that because that's determined. You're like, what? You know, there's just okay. a, there's nothing there to that. that you, one of the one of the other things that he confuses himself and his readers with is by pointing out the many, many wonderful cases in which evolution and experience have made our tacit knowledge so good at forefronting what should be salient for us. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that we lack agency. No. He, 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 he does a ton of this science to show how all that stuff works, and but then he misses the fact that agency is part of the slow processing and the dual processing system, and evolution has made us uniquely able to reflect on what's going on, and that we can do tie-breaking with our consciousness and so on and so forth. And then he does that other silly argument about randomness. Okay, so here's mm. this argument. So normally, you know, with the dawn of the modern Newtonian age, determinism became the first big challenge to free will. Prior to that, it was God's foreknowledge. Sure. But we'll leave that aside because we don't worry about God's foreknowledge anymore. Uh, but my experiences were about foreknowledge, yes. similar to God, right? But um, so modern science, Newtonian, determinism, how can we have free will if everything's determined, right? And it's a reasonable inference. It looks like everything in nature is determined. Okay, I guess free will. Problem, Laplace, you know, that kind of thing. All right. Um, once quantum stuff was largely considered metaphysically indeterministic, uh -huh. And of course, there are some holdouts who say, no, no, hidden yeah. variables, when we get more knowledge, we'll, we'll see that they're deterministic too. That's to me some kind of religious attachment to determinism. Me too. I'm, a, I'm a, uh, you know, there are interesting debates, but just for the record, I'm an indeterminist at the foundational ground, objective indeterminist. That's my read on quantum mechanics myself, yeah. quantum field theory. Yeah, I think, uh, and I don't want to commit the fallacy of appeal to consensus or authority, right, but. Right. The, like the majority of those theoretical physicists whose area of expertise it is, some of them think there might be hidden variables, but m most of them think, no, it's metaphysically indeterministic. It's literally superimposed. It's not just that we don't know what's going on. Okay, whatever. But just suppose for the sake of argument that there is indeterminacy there. Um, so some free will defenders right away tried to say, ah, indeterminism, free will. And then the criticisms come in. Well, um, if it's indeterministic, it's totally random and you can't control the output of a random process. So indeterminacy can't help you at all. And they combine the two arguments, whether determinism is true or indeterminism is true. Either way, you have no free will. So if you say determinism is incompatible with free will, we call that hard determinism. Yeah. 
If you think determinism is compatible with free will, we call it soft determinism. If you think indeterminism is incompatible with free will, we call that hard indeterminism, right? If you yeah. think it's compatible, you would call it soft indeterminism. Libertarians are soft yep. indeterminists, right? If you combine both pessimistic views about free will, both hard views, you get hard incompatibilism. Mm -hmm. Free will is incompatible with both determinism and indeterminism. I am a soft compatibilist. Mm -hmm. I think free will is compatible with determinism or indeterminism. It's mm -hmm. compatible with both, I think. Yep. Logically, the issue of compatibility is a logical issue. It's yep. not an empirical one. The empirical question is whether or not determinism or indeterminism exists and whether mm -hmm. or not it rises up to influence agency and whether or not agency can exist in its face. Mm -hmm. Those are whether or not those are the case are empirical questions. Whether or not they could be the case are logical, conceptual analysis questions, yeah. right? So I'm coming from the theoretical, conceptual, analytic, philosophical perspective, the metaphysical. To me, free will, agency is compatible with both because I yeah. can see a model where everything is determined, but mm -hmm. it's I'm determined to have the kind of cybernetic control over myself that loops through my stack yeah. the right way such that my agency is really the nexus, the, the, the real locus of, of control is in me, yep. in such a way that the distal controls that led to that are functionally irrelevant. Yep. So I think that you can make a case for soft determinism, but I also think you could make a case for soft indeterminism, mm -hmm. where suppose there are indeterministic elements feeding into my system. If I've established that kind of functional cybernetic control, it doesn't matter that some of the things feeding into it are random. One of the simple, I like these simplistic analogies. Suppose that I'm out at the batting range and there's some kind of, you know, radioactive detector that is it cap, captures some quantum indeterminacy that influences how the ball will be thrown at me. Mm. So the ball is coming at me genuinely, metaphysically, randomly. Mm. My skill is at hitting the ball no matter how it comes out. Mm -hmm. And the more I practice, the more mm -hmm. my agency as a ball hitter is, right? Yep. So even if there's these random things coming at me, if I've cultivated that kind of agential skill that I was talking about, it right. doesn't matter if sources are deterministic or indeterministic. Yep. It's a soft compatibilist view. That's my view. Great. Yeah. Uh, one of the things about terminology there, and it, it, let me know if, uh, so I love the term agent agency more than I love free will at the level yeah, of some. Uh, and so, and me I noticed too. you were using those relatively. Uh, so I just want to highlight for me, the free will uh, sits in the danger at some level of this uncaused cause. At least it has this potential to pull the critics into an uncaused cause claim. And uncaused clauses, you know, there's the Big Bang, and, but un systematic uncaused causes are essentially dual world problems like Rene Descartes at some level. If you're going to have a whole other system that's organized, that's interfacing with the quote unquote real world, um, you got serious metaphysical problems. Yeah, I agree. Look, the words free will just invite all sorts of, uh, one of the problems is, what's the will? There's mm -hmm. no faculty that's the will. I don't know if you ever read George Ainsley's book, Breakdown of Will. I have he's, not, but I, uh, yeah, go ahead. Psychologist, researcher, theor theoretical psychologist, a fascinating study. 
um, I, I, I critiqued, I, I incorporated his model and critiqued it in my dissertation, which was my first 2010. Um, it's a functional system, the will. <laughs> it's a set of ability. Uh -huh. it's, it's of our volitional ability set. That's all. Yep. Right. Calling it a faculty is misleading. The will reifies it as a thing. It's yeah. a process. It's a set of abilities. And free, we typically associate that with uncaused cause because that's a kind of naive realism, like, you know, that kind of naive view of the world where we think, well, you know, I could have done otherwise under identical circumstances. So nothing caused me. Well, of mm -hmm. course, all sorts of things are causing me, but it's how are they causing me and how right. much am I a part of what's causing me? Right. Right. So, yeah, free will as a term, colloquially. It leads people into this problem, and I, I accept all the criticisms. Of, that's why I prefer the term agency. Yeah. And I think even autonomous, like mm -hmm. you're not totally autonomous, <laughs> but you have a degree of kind of self-enclosed agency. You're in a causal nexus. You're being influenced by tons of things, your genetics, everything else. You're, you're constantly being influenced. But how much of the age, how much of the cybernetic control do you have conscious, voluntary, you know, exertion over that to me is 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 free will. It maybe it's a little bit of revisionism in the terminology, but uh -huh. that's okay. Um, we uh -huh. still use the same word whale, uh, even though we used to think it was a fish. <laughs> We're talking about the same thing, uh -huh. right? So we thought that the thing that we call free will had certain features. Maybe we were off a little about this feature or that feature. But there's still a thing in there. Um, mm. You want to call it something better, call it agency. Right. Um, Lovely. But, you know, you know what XFI is, experimental philosophy, mm -hmm. is this new, a relatively new thing where philosophers – so in the debate about free will, this issue comes up. And critics who want to say there's no free will, they want to say, but what we always meant by free will was that uncaused cause thing. So mm. let's go out poll the population and find out if that's what ordinary folks, the man on the street thinks. And if we could prove that that's what the man on the thing on the street thinks, then we could say, we've shown that there's no such thing as free will. And we go out and we do all these studies and we give people these confabulated scenarios about you read an article that the science proves that determinism is true, but this guy on the jury or whatever, you know, all these cases, and we try to tease out their intuitions and what they're willing to say. And all of that research is promising and interesting, but it's in an infantile stage right now. Mm -hmm. um, and what was really fascinating is that the current, the majority of the current research shows that the man on the street is willing to say compatibilist things about free will. Yeah. Not that uncaused cause stuff. Right. They're willing to say both. So I think that the man on the street is a soft compatibilist. If mm, you ask. Interesting. Lovely. I, I like to look at, you know, I think that I've I spent some time looking at the way the law determines certain kinds of things like yeah. responsibility, yeah. Uh, agency, intent. Uh, he thinks the whole legal system needs to be revised. Well, this is what I, I found to be. I thought it's almost, you know, really scary. And so the idea that he that even though his his folk psychological intuition, which he admits to be insane, his science is taking him, so he's going to take the whole, the, you know, any kind of conservatives. Actually, these things happen for, 
you know, we build systems of institution and they don't function perfect and they don't always conform to science. But we're going to go ahead and knock down this idea of blame and responsibility at any at every level of existence, whether you've done something like win an Olympic medal or you've raped somebody. We are never going to afford any kind of respect or disrespect, blame or or admiration for any kind of thing, because the implication is that we are meat puppets uh, and there is nothing there along this line. And I'm going to now chide you into thinking otherwise so that you get, wait a minute, hold on, you're now blaming us. I mean, the the performative contradiction and then the implication of what that would be societal-wise. And I'm like, you're recommending this uh, based on what? I mean, I, I find that to be unbelievable. Two things. One, his argument leading to that conclusion, well, it's a lot of them, but one of the main ones is his very close detailed description of all the ugly earlier ignorant versions of our justificatory systems going back to witch hunts and, all the, sure. and like all, you know what mm -hmm. we did to schizophrenics like all just the whole history of how bad it's been is a kind of implicit therefore it's all always wrong Right for us to hold anybody with blameworthy or praiseworthy, and the performative uh, one of the other performative contradictions is his name on the book and him receiving the profits for it. Yeah. I mean, how does he justify? How does he justify that? that? How does he justify anything? According to his theory, all the noises coming out of his mouth are no different from the gases coming out of other orifices in his body or bile coming out of his liver. I mean, it's just phenomena unfolding it's just it has no meaning right it's there's some sort of biophysical behavior it's just biophysical right. behavior how, how does he conclude and this is a problem sam harris tries to address yeah. with his landscape stuff how does he come up with any moral conclusions whatsoever about what a better world would be one that lacks these things would be a better world in what sense oh there'd be less suffering but in the whole history of biology all there is is suffering man Animals <laughs> eating animals. Come on, like right, behavioral suffering, and that just is. That just is, you know. Yeah, um, if there can't be any justifications, then how can you justify the idea that this will be an improvement? I think he's dead in the water on justifications. It's totally ridiculous. So, what I want to say about him, a meta level. This is a deep criticism I have, not only of him but of a lot of people, and I think you're going to like this. You know about my work with Knowledge Coin. Yeah, of you course. Know, the we have my company, KnowledgeCoin.io. We're trying to develop a decentralized, like fact-checking, knowledge yeah. validate system because it's decentralized. We're trying to set up with AI's help and everything to filter out every kind of bias and whatnot. Now, there's a company out there that just released an app that's very similar to what we want to do. It's like one component of many of the more broader things that we want to do. It's Epsilon Theory is the name of the company. And they okay. just came up with an app called Fiat News. Mm. Uh, and if you just Google Fiat News, Epsilon Theory, you'll find the link to them. Really fascinating stuff. So they're using- Okay, so you mentioned this on the list, right? You, you mentioned this on the TO oh, the did Talk I? list. Oh, I forgot about yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. recently, yeah. fairly recently. I saw oh, you oh, come I in, I was curious. I shared that with, I, yeah, I yeah. forgot that. Yeah. So they use large language modeling, AI, linguistic analysis, and all sorts of um, analytic tools 
to identify language that's clues for what they're calling fiat news. So all sorts of news articles are presented as if they're facts, but yep. there'll be statements in there such as our uh, anonymous sources or most experts in the field agree that, uh, and there's all these hedges and dodges and linguistic foils that hide the fact that they're presenting alleged facts as if they're facts, mm. right? So they've cultivated a way of identifying these things and they have all these beautiful graphs and models and everything to show you that they could just take an article, run it through their system and print out this analysis of how much of it is fiat news. Mm. It's fact. We love that at, at Knowledge Coin. We reached out to them. We'd like to just incorporate their app into our program and everything. Uh, we're waiting to hear back from them. But they're basically, can I curse on your? Of course. It's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a bullshit detector. It's a bullshit detector. And I call fiat science and fiat philosophy on this guy, Sapolsky. All right. It's just, and, and I want to go back to, Plato's Apology, where Socrates at his trial says that the oracle said no man is wiser than him. So he went out testing people to try to figure out if this could be true, because mm. the gods don't lie. But I know that I don't know anything. Mm. How could it be? Paradox. Mm -hmm. So let me go and interview the people I think are supposed to be smart, the sophists, the politicians. They're in one ca category. They're the leaders of society, the would-be leaders. Mm -hmm. They talk a lot of nonsense. They've got the gift of gab, but they don't really have the truth. They're persuasive. It's rhetoric. Mm -hmm. But they're hollow speech. Things haven't changed much. <laughs> 23, 2400 years. The poets... They're like mediums or channels for this beautiful language, like music, lyrics, and whatnot. It, and it's enchanting and meaningful sounding, but they couldn't explain the poetry. So they just have some kind of gift for producing things that seem meaningful. Maybe what um, Dennett would call deepities. Um, I, I don't know if it's necessarily that bad, but like a lot of musicians will say, you ask them like the Beatles, but that lyric in the song, we don't understand it. What is that supposed to mean? Oh, we don't know. We were stoned. It just rhymed. We put it in there, you know. So this ability to generate music or poetry, it's a different kind of skill than knowledge. Yeah. Right. So then the craftsman, Socrates was a, a stone craftsman himself. He knew that the craftsman had some kind of technique, mm -hmm. procedural knowledge. Yeah. He interrogated them and he said the flaw with them is that they do have technique. They have procedural knowledge. But because they have it, their epistemic, their epistemic egos were inflated, and they mm -hmm. thought they knew more things that they did that they didn't know. They treated their opinions as if it was the same as their knowledge, and they can't distinguish between what they know and what they don't. And that's what undermines all of their knowledge claims. That's what fiat claims right. did. That's gotcha. what fiat claims do. Love it. And we are in a world right now bombarded by fiat propositions. Ah, God, that's glorious. I love that. And uh, I mean, and I will say here, here's the reason that warms my heart um, is really what I'm trying to do with you talk, especially starting with the true knowledge. Okay, is basic and and really this is my phenomenological experience of you know I am stoned one day and I have the have this sort of vision, 
but but it's essentially the opposite of bullshit, uh, you know, in the sense that, oh, once I put this schematic through my lens, what emerges is cumulative knowledge. Well, oh, I can, this moves here, this moves here. And while certainly want to come and ask questions, what do you mean by energy? What do you mean by matter? But what emerges is, oh, that gets more refined. That takes this in and the system grows like a network. Um, um, and it maintains its core fundamental structure, which is the opposite, of course, of bullshit, right? Uh, bullshit is used for the rhetoric to fill in particular gaps to gain attention, status, redirect, that kind of stuff. But then when you try to get a grip on it, when you try to say, hey, what fundamentally is the ground of epistemology upon which I can then build my systems of justification that maintain integrity? But that fundamentally you talk about what is an optimal pragmatic grip that also maintains a, a profound epistemological structure that enables us to get clarity about ontology, enables us to get clarity about our metaphysical language, at least with an endo-natural view, open up to all sorts of possible you know, uh, phenomenon outside. But look at what naturalism did and powerfully did with Newtonian mechanics, and then look how fucking people take Yes, you can curse here. People take Newtonian, essentially Newtonian mechanics, and then jam it into our lives and say, uh, this is how we actually operate in the 23rd century. Come on. That's what we should got to get rid of. And we need an upgraded metaphysics that's got a core epistemological ontological structure that is opposite of fiat. It, it, it affords clarity. And then we should bring to bear skepticism and questioning and make sure, because if it's up to the task, it will hold. Um, but I love what you said about the knowledge because that's a, we're swimming in that shit and we don't have ways to cut through it. Yeah, everything you just said are, is a kind of summary of why I love your Utah system. When I first uh, heard about it and listened to some of your talks about it, I was like, that's, that's it. <laughs> that's what we need. We need something that goes from matter and energy up to where we are. And what happens at each cone in your model is new forms of causation. Your system explains emergent causation. And that's what Sapolsky is missing after the life level. He just thinks that everything is biochemical. Right. And he misses out on the new. There are distinctly emergent new forms of causal exchanges happening at each higher level. Totally. And, 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 and yeah, if you want a good recent article uh, for that, Eric Cole uh, and John mentions this some also is the world behind the world uh, did a mathematical analysis of causal emergence um, and does a great job of articulating exactly this point. Um, you talk emphasizes that causal emergence is going to especially be novel causal emergence when you get novel information processing systems. What the information processing systems are doing are they're not calculating all the micro. They're abstracting the form off of something and operating based on the form. So this is what a bear means. And this is what Rick Repetti means. I'm not looking at your quantum state. My epistemic frame is for you as Rick Repetti. And then you just hold that. But that means my system is treating you as this form. It's not treating you as your microscopic realizations, but that means your form macroscopically is having impact on the way I am in the world. So communication networks and information processing networks operate on the macroscopic forms. This is a novel kind of causation in the world. It's the agent processing the arena and responding to the arena in a particular kind of way. And that's why 
fucking cells and animals and now people behave so differently because then you get the genetic and neuronal and linguistic layering of information that gives rise to the network of called novel causation. I mean, it's just, and, and it's like, observe it, you know, uh, open your eyes. Look at the conversation we're having about uh, Sapolsky's system of justification and the culture person plane of existence. That is what's happening empirically. Observe it. <laughs> Yeah, the level of performative contradiction is ridiculous. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't, like, he has read a lot of intelligent philosophers' positions on many of the things that he brings in, like Greg Caruso, who's a good friend of mine. We went to grad school together. We had a free will study group together. Um, we had the same dissertation advisor. I wrote for free will. He wrote against it. I respect Greg a lot, and and uh, Sapolsky quotes Greg a lot and everything. But now Greg argues a, a kind of hard a hard incompatibilist view also, but it's not so simplistic and kind of silly. His version of it. Uh -huh. I mean, uh -huh. I, I've got criticisms and responses to it and everything, but this is like, I think I told you this maybe on a call or in an email, Sapolsky kind of makes Sam Harris look smarter than he is. <laughs> right. Yes, well, I, you did Sam say that. Yeah, Sam Harris makes similar mistakes, but not as silly as Sapolsky. Right. It's just it's crazy. At yeah. least Sam Harris is not an epiphenomenalist. He thinks everything that matters to us is in the realm of consciousness. Right, right, totally. Which is yes, real. Yeah. It, t it takes a little while for me to be clear about the errors Sam Harris makes on this issue. It, t it takes almost no time. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, you know, uh, at that level. So, you know, one of the other things I have to say about Sapolsky is that he kind of brags about the fact that he's known this pretty much since he was 13 years old. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That sounds to me like a confession of bias, of like <laughs> confirmation bias. I've been trying to prove this since I'm 13. Right, right, uh, right. Is he proud of himself to our knowing that? Or? <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I sort of confessed at the beginning of this conversation when I said what drew me into free will was the worry that we don't, might not have it. I still haven't answered that kind of uh, fatalistic thing mm. uh, time. Right. Well. I understand that. And I bracket it. It's like, uh, you know, I just don't have enough evidence to try. I don't know how to solve that yet. So I, right. I say that I have a kind of semi agnostic view about these things, which implies semi gnostic, you know, yep. uh, experientially. And as far as I can figure conceptually and philosophically, I think we have free will. I think the arguments that we don't fail. They fail to be persuasive. That doesn't mean that my arguments defending free will mean that it's true, that we actually have it. But all the evidence and the reason to me don't negate free will. And this is not an appeal to ignorance either, because I think we have a lot of evidence that we do have what I'm calling free will, which is yeah. this kind of cybernetic, um, you know, self-controlling form of agency. Right. Yeah. It's mental causation. It's genuine mental causation. Genuine mental not causation. Not phenomenal. It's right. genuine. Right. I'm in the exact same boat. I, and, and certainly, yeah, I, I, my experience is now with the descriptive metaphysical map that I have, uh, the, the fundamental experience is, oh, the, they're missing the descriptive. When you get the right me descriptive metaphysical map, this self 
agentic structure of my ego persona that's regulating my justificatory and creates this loop and then expands potentially or contracts. So another thing I was going to say is, you know, in the context of psychotherapy all the time, you get a contracting agency. You get people in what I call the cave of behavioral shutdown. I get miserable and then I get this. And then the opportunity for agency, it's a reciprocal narrowing. And then you feel trapped and, you know, stuck, right? Uh, and you uh, your external locus of control and your sense of who you are. And we say that's poor ego functioning. We don't mean, oh, like he's proud of himself. We mean, how do you solve problems? How do you reflect? What's the complexification and flexibility upon which you bring different sets of understanding so that you could achieve your valued states of being? I mean, that's just a fact. <laughs> that's like, that is like to the extent that I can make factual sense out of the world as a yeah. human being. That is and just a not, fact. And we're not manipulating people's neurons when they come into <laughs> that, that. That's a total any more than we're manipulating them atomically. I mean, you know, I mean, why stop at a neuron? Let's get down into the why stop at an atom? Let's go to electrons. I mean, why stop at electrons? It's all quantum fields. This layering of ontology that way to, to afford, and not even explanation, I mean genuine ontological causation. That's what the, that's what the four cones are. It's like, and because we get different novel information structures that are generating novel causal patterns. Oh, one little um, thing I'd like to say, this is a tangent, but when you mentioned atoms and whatnot, it reminded me that, um, what do you call it? Many people like Sapolsky, they like the deterministic argument against free will because of that mechanical model that if the Big Bang happened, every word coming out of our mouths is, is a function of the, the Big Bang. It's just an extension of it, right? We have no real control. Any control that we seem to have is that was controlled, right? So the thermostat controls the temperature in the building, but you control the thermostat. You know, this, it goes, the Big Bang controls everything, right? And that's some kind of erroneous conception of cybernetic control because these things do there's no transitivity of control across that but that's beside right. the point. but suppose there was this is a modal fallacy i have a criticism of that in my book uh, you know this is the wrong kind of model of control it doesn't work that way but in any event suppose it did right mm -hmm. make this point when they say oh indeterminism can't help you at all the scariest model against free will is this deterministic robotic model yeah right Agreed. Now, Sapolsky goes through great lengths, and many philosophers do, to say that even if there is real metaphysical quantum indeterminacy at that small, tiny level, oh, you know how small it's infinite. By the time you get to the level of an electron, there's probably not a single atom in the world that was ever affected by it, blah, blah, blah. And they're exaggerating how little it could be, right? But chaos theory lets you know that small changes in a system can have large consequences. Totally. So if even a single quantum event ever happened that was indeterministic, it would have rippling effects. If you could rewind the universe like a DVD in a completely deterministic world and press the button at the Big Bang point, it would be the same thing on every single rerun in a deterministic world. That's the ugly, frightening picture. Totally. But if there's a single indeterministic thing going on, you'll get a different outcome every right. single time. Exactly. And although that doesn't guarantee you free will, that undermines the deterministic argument against free will. Totally. <laughs> I've been saying that for over 20 years. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that.
Uh, and that's a, that's certainly my experience. And I did for a little while. I struggled with I maybe at 15 or whatever when I got introduced to classic physics. I str- and I could see the standard classic. If it's an absolute space time and an absolute necessary efficient cause all the way down. OK, there yeah, is this and all the way up. You do get this. Well, wait a minute. There's no other alternative. And every time you push play on the thing, it comes out the exact same way. And to the extent we are facing that kind of determinism, this issue of free will gets fuzzy. Um, I, I, my my read on current physics is that's clearly not in the ballpark of what right. of the ontology of what we understand the world at all. At the yeah, and the, the ancient point. Greek atomists even thought there had to be some kind of swerve in there. Mm. Because otherwise, we'd be robotic and there'd be no creativity and no change and no evolution. Oh, okay. No differentiation in the world, right? That kind of yeah. thing. That's a complicated a tangent. But yeah. Well, this has been a uh, this is, you know been a conversation with a number of swirls in it that I've definitely enjoyed. We're going to say, I'm sorry if I cut you off. Yeah. Um, I don't remember what I was going to say. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, from my vantage point, um, w- one of the things that, you know, uh, and again, you know, obviously we're scholars and whatever, all due respect to the person. Uh, but I really want to make this point. Uh, oh, go ahead. No, no, I remember. So go ahead. Okay. I, have my- I, I really want to make this point, folks. Okay. It's like we need we, the, the, from my vantage point, at least, the basic metaphysical problem is clearly identified as a problem with the enlightenment gap. That means that once we get Newtonian mechanics established to map the you know normal matter, we then we have this very powerful epistemological frame, and then we can't get mind into the equation for a whole host of different reasons. Um, and then we actually get really confused. There's the epistemology of science, it's ontology. And we get the enlightenment gap of what is matter relative to mind, what is scientific knowledge relative to subjective and social knowledge. And I would argue that modern modernity at a knowledge system breaks here. We do not, our scientific philosophy is lacks a consilient, coherent understanding that makes us, allows us to make sense of this conversation, quantum mechanics, general relativity, and everything in between. We don't have to be ignorant about this. There's a lot availability for coherent picture thinking that allows the grip and our deference to somebody like Sapolsky just shows the current ignorance of the current state of affairs and its its devotion to these age-old ideas. John, I was annoyed with John a little bit, not annoyed, but in his conciliance talk, he's like, well, these arguments need to be made. And I'm like, John, everyone already knows. Well, John, with, with Sapolsky coming out and getting the attention he does, thank you for your leveling up argument in the original, in the conciliance conference, because clearly uh, when we look at the institution, uh, we see this. So that's why I'm pushing this issue very hard. I'm be- super uh, happy to have uh, you along with me as we push this issue pretty hard today. So that's what I wanted to say about why why I'm pretty passionate and kind of disagreeable uh, with Sapolsky on this issue. Yeah, I'm with you 100 percent on that. I just thought of something I wanted to say earlier, but two things. One was when you we were talking about emergence being real, causally new functions that aren't explained, that the transitivity doesn't go up completely. Something new is happening at that level, which can have downward causal influences on the lower level and so on. And this recursive, autopoetic, all this kind of different things are going on. What's his name? Bobby Azarian's latest book, The Romance of Reality, is a really good read for anybody who wants to get a grip on uh, how emergence makes good scientific sense. 
Totally. So I plug that book. Yep. And Bobby and I are in very close agreement. We've talked quite a bit. I'll be having him on the show. I'm a good friend of his, uh, you know, a friend of his and, and very aligned with a lot of what he said for sure. Yeah. He wants to have a podcast with me talking about free will. So that, that's going to happen soon. The other thing I wanted to say is Sapolsky never, I like almost every opponent argument that he brings up is straw manned in some way or ridiculed or disparaged or placed alongside something else that would make it look stupid. He doesn't once try to steel man the opponent. So I want to say in fairness to there is an intelligent version of the things he's trying to say. That's Greg Caruso. Hmm. That's Greg. So there is an enlightened, a more enlightened version of, of that. And Greg also argues for some kind of reform in our system, but not a complete eradication of blame and punishment and things like that, but just a more compassionate. um, He does believe that we're not ultimately responsible, you know? Um, And Mm -hmm. so we should form the system. What does he call it? The quarantine model and the, and the um, public health model by criminals they're dangerous, like someone with a disease. We have a right to quarantine them, but you know, not to punish them and all that. I respect his model as a more compassionate model, uh-huh. but I don't think you need these free will arguments for a more compassionate model. Totally. And I and I also find the arguments unpersuasive. Yeah. Um, and he stretches, in my view, Greg stretches this idea by overloading this term, like free will he overloads this term of ultimate moral desert right mm-hmm. so that so and and built into it this idea almost like being a prime mover on move it's a similar kind of thing where right. you don't have true total ultimate desert unless you have this tremendous autonomy uh and then lacking that you're really not responsible and we should be more right. compassionate. Yeah, it's a somewhat okay elements to that. But I just wanted to say in, in fairness to the argument Sapolsky could have made. That's right. The steel man on the other side. I deeply appreciate that. And, and generally my, sen- uh, my sensibilities are on more to compassion. Uh, but I think from my vantage point, and this, you know, uh, you know, justification explodes onto my consciousness and, you know, as an ontological fact of something that we do as uh, unique primates. And then when you have that, you realize actually to navigate the world as cultured persons, it's to navigate the sea of justification. Um, and, and, and to obliterate that is to obliterate our capacity to coordinate and navigate the way we do in different ways. And, and, Sorry, could finish your sentence. Yeah, and, and, and so issues of personal responsibility, you know, are maybe not at the epicenter of justification, but pretty damn close uh, to functionally network our regulatory structures um, at that level. So from my vantage point, the ontological necessity, pragmatic ontological necessity of being the way we are. Okay, is something you really deeply have to take consideration as opposed to some sort of analytic philosophical argument that ties more responsibility to some abstract notion of absolute pure uncaused unprime mover structure. It's like actually, do you know what it's like to be a parent? You know, it's like blame and responsibility to navigate parenthood or or you know, anyway. So if the straw man, if not a red herring straw man, well, all straw men are red herrings because they they're distracting you from the real argument and making believe that they're attacking the real argument. You know, it's, it's constitute, it's constitutive us. It's constitutional. This primate thing of shared attention and shared intention. And what is that? That's sensory motor. 
Attention is sensory. Uh, intention is motor. What I want to do to change the world. We're minded beings in, in shared mind spaces. That's a reality. That's a causal reality. That's new. That's not electrons and, and, and cells. It's something radically new. I wrote, Greg, I don't want to say this the wrong way, but almost all the major architectural aspects of your model in Utah are in my dissertation when mm -hmm. I go through this kind of phylogenetic history of new forms of causation leading wow. up to primate simulation, mindedness, mm -hmm. all the, I've got it all there, not in the same really well elegant structure that you have, but the elements are in there. I have to give you a copy of that. I would love to see that. I'd welcome that. And then in fact, let's, let's be clear. That's why I, mean, I loved your, your stuff. Uh, about, well, I mean, oh, I mean, you know, I, I, so much better than I do. <laughs> well, I mean, Aristotle said a lot of it pretty well. I mean, he didn't have a lot of the, you know, but his basic scales of nature that goes essentially back to, you know, it's just, it's updating it and showing how to do it uh, right. And many people have seen that. That's lovely. Uh, Rick, it's just just a you know uh, your deep friend. It's a joy uh, to to ha hear oh, your reflections pleasure. and and a deep pleasure. And uh, I think we made some pretty good points about uh, why we chose to come on here and demonstrated our agency uh, and, and enjoyed our systems of justification and demonstrated those are pretty relevant. And we take responsibility for our arguments. Uh, and I want to praise you for the elegance of them. <laughs> so there it is. <laughs> Feeling is mutual, Greg. I really appreciate it. I, I always enjoy speaking with you, and I value our friendship. I, uh, uh, the same for you. Thank you so much, friend. I hope you have a good night. Thank you. You take care.